a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. You know, I am a big C.S. Lewis fan. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever read him or not, but I would highly recommend reading him. In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, which is probably one of his greatest works, Lewis brilliantly captures the person of Christ in the lion character Aslan. It's fascinating to me in reading the books how people respond to Aslan. And there are so many sentences, so many great parts in the books and even in the movies. But one of my favorite lines is when they say that Aslan is on the move. I love that. Because God is on the move. He's transforming lives. God has been working in the lives of people all over the world. Look what's going on in the church in Iran. Look what's going on in the church in China, throughout all of Africa, in South America. It's incredible when you hear the testimonies of what God has been doing in the world. God has been working in the lives of people. So when we hear that the devil's working in the world, how bad the culture has become, and it has, I mean, we, we hear about these all the times. So we always get all the headlines, but rarely do we hear about what God is doing in the world. Why? Why is that? It's because the people don't really care about good stuff. They really don't. People don't care about orthodoxy. People don't care, or most oftentimes, and I'm talking about just regular everyday people, and you can say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and they won't even bat an eye. But if you say that Jesus had a wife or something like that, and everybody lines up at your door, it's ridiculous. And we need to see how God is really working in the lives of his people. We need to hear that. We need to hear those stories when God shows himself to be God. And that means when people are coming to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their lives, or whether that means stepping into the waters of baptism or joining with a body of believers on mission to reach the world. I love seeing God at work, hearing how people are forsaking sin, surrendering their lives, pursuing righteousness, and making the kingdom of God known. It's exciting to me. But I know it's not exciting to everyone. Today, we're going to delve down deep again into another episode in the early church and what happens to an entire community as the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, begins to grow and expand. What does happen when God is on the move? What happens to your family members? What happens? How does your boss respond? What happens to your roommate? What happens when the gospel gets out of the four walls of the church into the community? What happens when it gets into a marriage, a family, school? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And I am going to be jumping into Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 42. Now, here we go. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done by the people, among the people, by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came, by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all 
speaks speak to the people all the world words of this life. Very important right there, of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came by, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave, and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For behold, the, for before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or, or, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's the reading of of our text for today. And I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you in part by Derek Eastman Insurance Agency. If you're looking for life, home, or auto insurance, then Derek Eastman is your guy. Get a free quote from Derek Eastman in Sugar Grove, Illinois at 630-466-1144. Now, let's get after it. Let's begin in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done by the people by the hands of the apostles. Most people just stop there and they want to talk about the signs and the wonders. They become really intoxicated with this idea of signs and wonders. But we need to really draw out the context for, to really grasp what's going on. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is right outside the temple. Now, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that 
they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, notice the influence that the early church was having on people. They were attracting a, a quite large following. The church was growing at an exponential rate. It had gone from 120 to 3,000, and now to 5,000 and still growing. And how could they not grow? I mean, these guys were doing great miracles, amazing healings, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, all kinds of sicknesses and diseases being cured. What can we gather from this? Here, here's the principle, that when God is on the move, our faith becomes desirable to people. That's the first principle that we need to take away. When you see people genuinely loving each other, living for something greater than themselves, and lives being changed, it makes you want to be a part of it. And while it's not desirable to everyone, it is definitely desirable to a large group. And the first group that is desirable, it, 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 I mean, the first group that is desirable to the saved, that's the most obvious. See, saved people, and these are those who are saved from the wrath of God, want to be together. Some call themselves believers and try to make it that no church is good enough for them or they don't need church. That's what some people say. I don't need church. I just have me and Jesus. No, if you are a true follower of Jesus, then you need to be with God's people. That's how God has ordained it. You can't have Jesus without his church. That's not how he set it up. He, he died for his bride, which is his people, and his people are to be together. And that's what the whole New Testament's about, is how people are committed to one another and how they were trying to live out this Christ following life in the midst of the sinful societies in which they found themselves. And we have to understand this. Notice that they were all together in Solomon's portico. All who knew Jesus were gathering together to worship, to hear good teaching, and watch God work. They were meeting in Solomon's portico, which we learned a few weeks ago was a middle court in the Jewish temple, a meeting place where Jewish men and women could meet and learn more about Jesus. Now let's go to verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Several feared the wrath of Jewish leadership, being put out of the community, being shamed by their family, perhaps losing their, their way of living and even their lives. In our own culture, we think about being canceled or what people are going to be saying about us online. And as we've seen before, the price to follow Jesus is great, but it's worth it. He is desirable even to the scared. So he's desirable to the saved, but he's also desirable to the scared. You know, they didn't join the church, but they honored those in the church and what they were doing. They admired their courage, fortitude, and faith. God will draw all kinds of people when he does. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were a little bit like this. Members of the Jewish ruling council who didn't participate in Jesus's death, but neither spoke out against it either because they were afraid of the repercussions. Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night because of being afraid of how others would perceive it. Both Joseph and Nicodemus revealed themselves as at, at Jesus's death. Joseph, if you remember this, he's supplying the tomb and Nicodemus supplied the myrrh and aloes used to prepare the body for burial. And while they were fearful during Jesus' life, at his death, we see them coming to help, presumably to show that they were ready to reveal themselves as Jesus' disciples. Now let's put this into our own time. What are you scared of 
in following Jesus? Are you scared of how your family will respond? For those who are listening to my voice in India, you have a very real fear. Those in Bangladesh, those in Pakistan, those who are in different parts of the world, you are nervous because of how your family is going to respond to your proclamation that you are following Jesus. I understand your fear. The opportunity for rejection only increases the stress the closer the person is to you. And while there are many who are listening to my voice right now that may be secret believers now, there will come a time when you need to make that public. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32-34, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The faith is not only desirable to the, to the saved and the scared, but to both sexes. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's a pretty important thing to understand. The text makes special effort to identify that both men and women were following Jesus. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, the fact that, th that this was even taking place in Solomon's portico meant that the apostles wanted women there. They knew how God viewed women, not as property, but as co-heirs of salvation in Jesus Christ. Secondly, in some cultures, faith in Christ is actually seen as for women and not men. In fact, there are several churches where the men are not even there. They have failed to step up and take responsibility as the spiritual leaders in their homes and in the church. And both men and women, though, are essential to, make, to the makeup of God's church, each able to complement the other in their gifts and talents. Don't think that Christianity is just for men or for women. It's for both. Fourthly, it's desirable for not only the, the, the saved, the scared, both sexes, but also to the superstitious. Let's take a moment to read through verse 15 here for a moment. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. It was believed that a person's shadow carried a person's influence in the ancient world. And because Peter was the great spokesman, and had been able to heal the man born lame with John, then his shadow casting over them would heal them. And this is a superstitious belief, and it wasn't his shadow that healed them. It was God's power coming out from them and their belief that God could heal. The same is true of the woman subjected to bleeding for 12 years in Matthew chapter 9. She thought if she could just touch the hem of Jesus' Jesus's garment, she would be made well. Was it the hem of his robe that healed? No. It was simply him. God will even work in, our, in spite of our superstition to accomplish his purpose. Superstition is something that is alive and well in our world. People believe in all kinds of luck, talismans and trinkets, but none of them heal. In the ancient world, there were many charlatans who went about peddling trinkets that they claimed to have healing power. Splinters from the cross of Jesus, part of Jesus' robe, the Holy Grail, the Shroud of Turin, and such things. But things and places don't have power in them. The power is in Jesus himself. 
And while God will work in spite of our superstitions, it is best to abandon them and place our faith in Jesus alone, not in talismans, amulets, trinkets, and formulas. Now let's get to verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick. So they brought with them, and the next group that's attracted is the sick. Remember, we have the saved, we have the scared, we have both sexes, we have the superstitious, and now we have the sick. Those who were suffering with all kinds of illnesses, cancers, heart ailments, skin issues, lame, deaf, mute, blind, etc. Everything and anything they had and were dealing with. They were brought to the apostles because they alone held true hope. And that was Jesus. They also brought with them those afflicted with unclean spirits. That's what our text says. The Greek word for afflicted refers to unclean spirits, also known as demons, exerting an overwhelming sense of worry, annoyance, and frustration. The word literally refers to a crowd pushing something along, like the force of a mob that you can't escape from. They were spiritually oppressed. That's the next group. The spiritually oppressed are attracted. As Westerners, those in the West, we, we don't understand demonic activity very well. In fact, we're afraid to talk about it because if we do, then we might have to deal with it. Or we could go to the opposite way and we find a demon in everything and in every situation and in every practice. And we have to have a proper rhythm and a proper understanding because the devil does work within the world. Balance is the name of the game here. Because there are some things such as mental illnesses, and yet there is such a thing as demonic oppression. Demons can cause sicknesses, anxiety, worry, and the like. Now, that does not mean that every form of anxiety or stress that we go through has a demon at its root. However, demonization is a very real thing and requires to be dealt with, and often deliverance is the key. Deliverance happens when the person wants to be freed from the from the oppression and then seeks out help in order to be delivered. And there are several other rules for deliverance and time doesn't permit here. Suffice to say that the spiritually oppressed were attracted to the faith because only the name of Christ could free them. I remember when I was in school with a guy named Vishnu. Vishnu was raised in a Hindu family in Sri Lanka. He grew up on a farm in the country that was owned by an African couple who practiced voodoo. He shared his story one day in class and began quite abruptly, I was once demon-possessed. That woke me up, let me tell you that. When he was a boy, the sun would go down, and he began to tell about how he would grow violent and utter all kinds of profanity and couldn't be controlled. It's so bad that they built him a room with no windows. And at sundown, right when he started to get bad, they would throw him into the room. Then they would hear him utter all kinds of horrid things, and they did this every single night. The mother sought relief for him through various Hindu priests, but they could do nothing. She didn't know what to do. They got really scared when the voodoo couple came to the house asking for the boy. Then they claimed him. They said they, they had claimed him, and they wanted to sacrifice him. Now that should freak you out. It freaks me out. It scared his mother so much that she finally agreed to let her Christian ne nephew take Vishnu to church. He came, picked him up on his bike, and made the trek several miles to the church. 
And then here's what happened. Vishnu heard the gospel and responded by receiving Jesus Christ as his Savior that day. And that evening, when his cousin brought him home, he was a different person. And what made matters even more amazing is that they heard shouting, and the voodoo couple was outside of the house in the yard, screaming, throwing dirt in the air. You see, God had removed the demon from him, and he had no more problems after that. And what's even more phenomenal? That same couple died in a car accident three weeks later. No one could help the young man but Jesus. He's the only one. No priest, no incantation, no spell, no amulet, no object or person was able to heal or help him. The apostles were able to heal all of those who came to them. It's quite phenomenal and another sign that they were an extension of Jesus' healing ministry. That's not to say that all who come today will be healed in the same way. They were able to heal actively with the appearance that they could do it whenever they wanted to. But ours is more passive. And that we have to wait on God to show us when and how he wants to heal in his way and in his time. While the gospel is desirous to all kinds of people, and we've gone through that entire list, remember it's the saved, the scared, the sexes, the superstitious, the sick, and the spiritually oppressed, we see that he's also dangerous to the powerful. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. Christ is a threat to the powerful. Christ represents a new kingdom, a different power, and requires them to be brought to give an account for their action. It is dangerous because it changes those around us. You see, the Sadducees were frustrated because the people were flocking after Jesus' followers. They were the ones being honored, something the Sadducees felt they deserved. They had the education, after all. And who are these upstarts? And remember, these guys were the scholars and politicians. They worked hard to get where they were, mastering the scriptures and spending hours making sure that they understand the minutiae of the traditions. These guys were the voice of authority in doctrinal matters. They oversaw the temple in various aspects of life, birth, marriage, death, and the various dietary laws and life issues that inevitably come up. But when this Jesus guy comes along, he comes from a backwoods town and with no training amasses a huge following. And then the backwoods prophet has the gall to call them self-righteous? Huh. Whenever we have those around us change, it can shake us. Because their change means, I mean, really confronts us with our own behavior. How we live, spend our money, and time. These guys can't take it, so they decide to have the leaders arrested. The disciples are arrested and put into prison, but an angel shows up in the night, opens the prison doors, and lets them out. And once out, they're told to go to the temple and teach about this new life, which they do. When the Jewish leaders, I mean, when the Jewish leaders show up in the morning and, and order the apostles brought to them, they, they found that they were missing, even though the doors were locked. I mean, it was a great escape act, right? What does this mean for us? It means that the gospel can't be contained. People can try to stop God's work through threats, persecution, and the like, but the gospel can't be stopped. God, God's good news cannot be contained. 
Governments can testify about this, trying to keep it out, trying to ban the Bible, trying to kill believers where they are. But God's word, God's gospel cannot be contained. It can't. And it's dangerous because of that. And it's also dangerous because it clashes with our worldview, our natural worldview. I mean, what did we just see a moment ago? Who let the apostles out? An angel. Now, that's very significant because we're talking about the Sadducees. Do you know what the Sadducees denied even existed? You got it. Angels. God has an angel come in and free them. They were left standing there, I mean, standing at the empty cells, trying to figure out what happened. And when God comes into a life, what we understand about the world is upended. Each of us has to learn how to live within this world. And we have to create a framework to operate by. Some of this is created by where we were born, who our parents are, as well as the hardware we are born with, along with any personal experiences we may have. And while we have a way of looking at the world, one of the greatest and most personal identity markers we have, I mean, is Christ, who comes along and changes everything. So God's, God's gospel is desirous to all kinds of people, and it's dangerous to the powerful because it changes those around us. It can't be contained. It clashes with our worldview. And God's work also challenges our authority. You know, one of the things that really bothers me within social media is everyone claiming authority to speak into another person's life. As if every single one of us can just speak without qualification into someone's life. Now, we can say whatever we want to, but it's the gospel that really does claim authority. The apostles are brought before the authorities in questions. Look at verse 28, saying, they're saying to the apostles, we strictly charge you, remember that, not to teach in this name. Yet here, you guys have done exactly what we said you shouldn't do and have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this is the part I love. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Why did the angel have them preach in the temple when they knew that they were going to be caught again. You ever thought of that? I mean, to show that the authorities, that they weren't running away in fear, that they were testifying in the face of danger, obeying a greater authority. That's what's going on. You, you know, we want to be our own authority, but we aren't. God is, and we are all accountable to him. And God's work not only challenges our authority, but it charges us with sin. This is why I laugh when people say that they are objective when they approach Christ with other religions. No, you can't be. No one can be. I don't care what your educational level is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care what any experience you may have. We are all charged with sin, every single one of us, and we are indicted by the word of God. Therefore, in many ways, we have to recuse ourselves because we are engaged in this process. I mean, if we would be in a court of law, we would, we would have to recuse ourselves because we're being charged. And we say we're being objective. We cannot be. God's work charges us with sin. Check out what Peter says to the religious leaders in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He tells them that they were guilty of killing God's Christ. We are guilty of killing Jesus, spiritually speaking. God gave his son for our sins, not someone else's, but ours. We are sinners in need of a savior. The gospel indicts every single one of us. In order to be saved, we have to turn away from our sin to the savior who alone is the one who can forgive us of our sins. We are the ones who killed him spiritually. You know, it's very interesting. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, director Mel Gibson, in the the scene where the nail is being driven through his wrist, you see a hand and you see, of course, the nail and the hammer. It was actually Gibson's hand. Gibson was trying to show that he was responsible for killing Jesus, as we all are spiritually speaking. We have to keep that in mind. We're all charged with sin. He died for our sins, our transgressions. Now, let's look at verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This had to be something that really frustrated the religious leaders because the apostles claimed to have the Holy Spirit of God who can only be given to those who obey him by repenting of their sin and embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's dangerous because the gospel claims something we may not have. That's also why it's dangerous. It claims something that we may not have. And when I say we may not have, I am referring to unbelievers. Believers have the Spirit of God who comes upon them the moment that they trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, but unbelievers have no such thing. By contending that they had the Holy Spirit of God, they were once again showing that they were in the right with God and the Sadducees were not. This is where we often get into trouble with unbelievers because we claim a moral high ground that makes it seem that we are better than they are, and that's not right. We have to be careful and not come across as arrogant, but humbly certain of what God's word says. And we must also give credit to God for the change that he has seen in our lives, as well as claim personal responsibility for the evil we have done. When we do that, the gospel becomes much more attractive to those around us. Do you have God's Holy Spirit living in you? Does your life reflect it? How did they respond to the apostles' testimony? They wanted to kill him. It was then that one of their most esteemed teachers spoke up. Gamaliel called for the court to be silenced, had the apostles removed from the room so that they could talk freely. They were in a tough situation. To recognize the work of the apostles meant that they were guilty of killing God's Messiah, and that's a terrible thought. If they had tried to kill or harm them, then the people might riot because the people believed the apostles. What what were they then to do? You know, there is a greater principle here that I want to bring to our attention. When God is working in people's lives, it is difficult for some to process. People respond to God's work differently. They see good things going on and may enjoy it at first, but when their particular sin gets called out or their lifestyle or means of income is threatened, they will respond negatively. Most people, when they encounter you and what God is doing in your life, aren't sure if we're a threat. Remember, the apostles claimed that the Sadducees were responsible for killing Jesus. 
And there was the fear that the people might try to kill them because of what they had done. That's why they said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Such words could mean that their lives would be threatened. That's what happens when we call out someone's sin, that they, don't, they see you as a threat because you have made them feel uncomfortable and made them think about stuff that they don't want to think about. And they would prefer to let sleeping dogs lie, but we cannot. We cannot. We have to press the truth of Christ home prayerfully, compassionately, and truthfully. Gamaliel then gives them a bit of a history lesson that will help them out in their decision. He cites two situations that some of the older members probably remembered, one with a guy named Thutis and another with a guy named Judas the Galilean. Both of them had risen up to a place of prominence, surrounded themselves with some followers, but both of them died and their movement died with them. If Jesus was at all anything like them, then they could simply be tuned out and nothing would come of this new movement. Some simply may try to ignore us in order to see if we go away. They may pacify you by saying that they will do what you ask them, but they don't. They simply want to move along and have you there with them. One of the amazing things about Gamaliel is that he actually leaves a door open for what the apostles are doing. I love this. He understands that, that it may truly be God at work. It rocks. Look at verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Sometimes people see that God is at work. Sometimes they follow and other times they don't. But as God works in you and through you, know that there will be some who will respond negatively. Some may try to ignore you and still others see God at work. Even though they may acknowledge that it might be God's work, they may still try to teach us a lesson. Look at verse 40. So they took, this, they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They still may come out against and try to stop us, try to find ways to assert their power as small as it may be. We have to learn to recognize that God is greater and learn to take joy and suffering for Jesus. I love verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy. I mean, I'm sure we would, as soon as we got out of that, we'd be texting going, you wouldn't believe what I just went through. And I highly doubt that we would be rejoicing. Suffering like this is a spiritual discipline whereby we are made more like Jesus. They considered it an honor to suffer for Jesus. He provided eternal salvation for them and a new way of life. And for them to suffer in his name was an incredible honor. We don't look at it that, that because that meant that they were fulfilling Jesus' words. As we read Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They were able to suffer for Jesus, which meant that their reward would be great in heaven. 
Have you suffered for righteousness' sake? Perhaps not so overtly. What about in your job, though? Your career? What about around your family? Take joy if God allows you to suffer for his name. You will be blessed. No matter what, we must follow the apostles' example in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. We must continue to testify about his salvation. They went from house to house and kept preaching and preaching that the Christ, the anointed one who was the expected one, was and is Jesus. What is keeping you from testifying about who Jesus is? I mean, what is it? Fear? What are you afraid of? Rejection? Suffering loss? Guilt? Shame? Don't be afraid. What is there to be afraid of? I mean, you could be sued, lose your job, lose your life. God will give you so much more because he is faithful. Realize that God is worth more than we could ever imagine. That's your, that's your water bottle for the week. That God is bigger and more grand and more awesome than we could ever imagine. God is on the move. And when, whenever he's on the move, people notice. Whether it's the curious or the critic, the powerless or the powerful, we don't know how people are going to respond to our message. But we are called to testify and give out this message. To suffer. And we're also called to persevere, persevere on to share the truth of who he is and what he has done on the cross for that person's sins, what he's done for us, but what he also can do for them, how he died their death, took on their shame, experienced their alienation. And through that Christ, he died. But it was by that cross that death died and Jesus' resurrection gave us hope. Hope for honor, hope for forgiveness, hope for new life and a new family. And it's available to you today. And that requires you to repent of your sins and embrace Jesus and he will save. Let's not put it off anymore and do it today. And here's your water bottle is that you're to take this truth and cling to it with both arms and marvel at the God who called you out. That's it. That's all I want you to do is to marvel at who God is. And I want to let you know that today's episode was sponsored in part by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then call Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate, please. She is fantastic at what she does. She's going to help you out, get you what you are looking for. She is your realtor. Call her now. At 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. That's another episode we have done. If this is el- episode has helped you, please, would you do us the honor of sharing it with other people so that they too can have their faith watered and then water their worlds with the good news of who Jesus is? And it requires you to hit that subscribe button, leave us a review. Interact with us on our on our social media pages and share this episode with other people. And I want to give a shout out to one of the greatest teams that a guy could have, Brian Dana, Kevin O'Brien, as well as Eliana Fleming and Rebecca Badal. And remember, there is still time to sign up for our men's retreat. April 23rd through 25th of 2021, as we talk about what it means to thrive in Babylon. We're going to have, we're going to open the Bible. We're going to be in prayer. We're going to explore 
and talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of this culture. And then we're going to be equipped with tools that will help us know how to navigate this, the chaotic waters of our culture better. And that's taking place again, April 23rd through 25th, Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in McWanago, Wisconsin. I would love to see you there. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.